has to play it as like a, a lap, like it's like across his lap. It's like a lap steal. Yeah, I mean, it's country. Like, did he get paid by Mountain? Dew? I mean, he must have, right? If it's the Mountain Dew meme guitar, surely Mountain Dew had a hand in this. I have no idea. This is the first I'm hearing of it, to be honest. Well, same, except people say he keeps pushing the boundaries. So he's done this before to some degree. Like, I, does he add a string every year? And he will again. Yeah, next year it'll be 21. <laughs> that thing looks amazing, though. I want to see Colin Marston play it. And yes, anyone, already anyone incorporating can. a Colin Marston reference into today. Our patron saint. Yeah. Uh, welcome to episode two of Hearwax 2. We're very consistent. So this is occurring almost exactly four weeks after <laughs> the first one. We really care about creating consistent listeners. Month Monthly is good. <laughs> 12 topics per year you're really going to cover the gamut yeah you know qu- quantity over quality man yeah i i know we were talking about how in the last podcast when we were talking about our best albums of the year you know using terms i think especially terms that you threw around like punishing and brutal and disturbing and like we mean those things positively and we thought that was kind of something interesting to jump off on in, in this pod and talking about why those are good things and things we actually look for in heavy, heavy music. I mean, I think people look for that in other genres now as well, when you see the evolution and how experimental and kind of weird rap and hip hop have, have gotten. But I think it's especially been the calling card of metal as, as an extreme quote unquote genre for, you know, a few decades, like those are the things we, we kind of seek out. So we wanted to talk about why those adjectives are uh, badges of honor, things that we actually actively enjoy when they're, they're kind of words that should connote negative things. Like who wants to listen to something punishing, brutal, and disturbing. And yet you and I will send each other albums, like new releases, we're like, yo, this is so brutal. You got to listen to it. Like that's, that's like a thing to grab someone's attention. So we wanted to talk about kind of that across a bunch of different reasons and ways that metal pushes that envelope. But it's not even good in spite of those words. Like we, we say it with, with genuine fervor. Like, like we're excited. Those are the good words. Those yeah. are the good words. That, like, I don't like, want just, metal just that's not the disturbing. Yeah. Look yeah. past it and you'll like it. No, it's it's like this is the selling point. Well, you mentioned, I think, on the last pod, or at least we've when we've talked about Death Spell, or no, not Death Spell Omega, although they would kind of fit into some of this too. But um, wow, I'm totally blanking. What's the brutal death metal band that you love? Oh, Defeated Sanity? Defeated Sanity, there we go. About how wow. when you first heard that's them for the- Weird flex, weird flex. <laughs> yeah, who's the band that you ranked number one or whatever? Uh, but about how how the first time you heard them, um, it was just like so extreme over the top and it like disturbed you, you know? And it is funny that like, that's a band that you rank as putting out like the best album of the year. Well, yeah, like I'll admit, I think I, I think I mentioned it like in passing, 
but I'll admit that I started listening to Defeated Sanity just because other people were saying, well, this is the most brutal music. Yeah. And when I was 17 years old, I was like, yeah, that's what I want to say that I listen to or, or say that I, I relate to, or I guess we'll get into this a bit later, but yeah, it ties into something I, I was kind of thinking about before. A lot of this stuff, a lot of metal, I wonder if it, it was the case for me, but I wonder if it was the case for most people or a lot of people at least that they went into it, not so much enjoying it for its aesthetic, its, blah, its aesthetic value uh, so much as proving something to themselves or to other people. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, a lot of the things we'll talk about kind of get to this, but there's something about hearing I mean, it's, it's the same when you see like a movie that does something you haven't seen before, but when music kind of does something you haven't heard before, it, it's just like, it's, it's mind blowing. You've never, it's so scary or so much more, you know, extreme to keep coming back to that word than anything you've, you've listened to before. And that's, that's exciting. It like gets your brain kind of firing, like, whoa, I didn't know things could sound this way. And then that can be to kind of touch on the topics we're going to cover today, but that can be anything from like the content lyrically or the image, uh, the, how fast it is, the rhythmic nature of it, the speed, the dissonance, like there's, there's all sorts of different ways that these can, these things can push you. And how exciting that is the first time you hear it. And metal kind of does all of these things. Uh, I mean, not all bands do all of them, but metal does all these things. And that's what's like, I mean, kept it exciting for such such a long period of time. I, I just also want to say, I this memory just came right back to me as we were talking. Uh, I grew up in the suburbs around Toronto. And my dad would take me into the city from the burbs uh, to go shopping at all the downtown record stores. I wasn't really into any music at that point in my life. Uh, but all I remember is on Young Street, there was this, um, I don't know what it was, like a, whether it was like a music slash vintage clothing store. Like if, if there's anyone in Toronto listening to this who knows Black Market, like it was something like that. Yeah. It wasn't Black Market, but. Yeah, because Black Market well, was on Queen, right? Yeah, exactly. But th this was something like that. It's just, you just get just a bunch of quote unquote counterculture memorabilia type stuff. Maybe they did tattoos there. Maybe, maybe it was a tattoo parlor actually. Anyway, Wait, was it, was it when you had to walk down a couple stairs? You had to walk down a set of yeah. stairs. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. It was, it was near Young and Dundas, which is had piercings and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, and it always had like really intense, metal music blasting from the doorway <laughs> yeah it did <laughs> and so as a child i was like vaguely aware of metallica and black sabbath but this like the place looked sketchy as hell like it it was creepy <laughs> like let alone from the the music playing like you were you were descending a staircase uh with a bunch of it just looked like a suspicious place to be, at least to a suburban child. Uh, I would actually today, I kind of find it kind of cool, maybe. I don't know. But yeah, th that, I think that was the first 
exposure to extreme music I in my life, you know, on the street, on Young Street. And uh, yeah, I just remember <laughs> like being scared and thinking, I'll never go down that stairwell, you know, this metaphorical stairwell. Uh, and sure enough, I kind of ended up doing it. So, yeah. Well, and now I'm pretty sure like where that place was or right next to where it used to be is like a Belgian waffle takeout place. So no, like a five guys or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like not, not that at all. Cause it was really close to like, and again, as like a kid, this being so like wild, but it was really close to where a few of those like strip clubs were on young. Was it not? It was like really close. I remember being closer to young and Dundas. Uh, for some reason, but yeah, you might be totally right. It might be next to Zanzi or something. Well, Zan- Zanzibar wasn't that far from Young and Dundas. Wasn't that far. You're right. You're like right. A, yeah. a block north, wasn't it? So it was like in that little. I remember strip. being like, I remember it being like right there, but whatever. Yeah, and then this there was another the place that Dundas pod. Okay, <laughs> and then there was another spot that just smelled entirely like hemp for like years, which was also like really close. Anyways, at that uh, age, I wouldn't even know what that smell yeah. was. <laughs> that's what kind of kid you were logan yeah <laughs> big doinks <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh but i i guess in terms since this is about ex- extremity uh you know the first kind of way i guess and, and this i think would have probably been more my first exposure to the genre was you know here and there you would see imagery kind of associated with metal music and and it went it you know, the first, I think when we were growing up, given our, our kind of ages, you know, you saw the music videos of like the Marilyn Mansons and even like kind of the music videos of like, even like Papa Roach would like shoot in this way, this frenetic way to like try and make you feel scared, which is really funny in retrospect because it was Papa Roach. But you know, the imagery associated with these things on posters that would be up everywhere. And and those became kind of synonymous with kind of the quote unquote bad kids, you know, would Mm. always have like a Marilyn Manson, like on TV, like a kid would have like a Marilyn Manson poster or love Marilyn Manson to like show that they were the bad kid in high school. So that image uh, and then the lyrical content from that as well, those would have been, I think the first exposures I had to it before really listening to any sort of extreme metal. Like I was into the St. Anger Metallica <laughs> and stuff like that before getting into like extreme metal. But that, I remember, that's a confession. I, Hey, you know, that snare still trying to create, recreate that sound to this day. No one can match it. Uh, but that, that would have been my first exposure is the image and the lyrical content. And it, and it, it was always scary when you're like 13, you grow up a little bit and then it's cool. Yeah, for sure. And I, I came around to it. I, I kind of met it the long way. Uh, but it's similar to you, I guess, uh, my exposure, I was really lucky with my exposure actually, because uh, I got like, what, what was the broadband cable? Like the, like the special cable that came out in the early, I don't know, made a big deal about you could do uh, you could like select what you wanted to view and stuff, but you weren't just at the mercy of flipping channels. It was like you, you suddenly oh, got 400 yeah, channels. Yeah. You know yeah, what I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah, now yeah. It's, now it doesn't even matter, but like back then it was a big deal for a 12 year old. Yo, much but, loud. Uh, Are you going to talk about much I'm, loud? I'm talking about much loud. So if yeah. I have, of, of, the, of the 300 new channels <laughs> that you get, you get much. I'm like, what is much loud? So I started listening to much loud 
And what's what's awesome about Much Loud and no one talks about is the fact that it was so genre agnostic. Like, yeah, it was loud, but it was like this podcast where it, it was... So, so in a playlist, you get a black metal song, then you'd get a grindcore song, then you'd get a death metal song, then you'd get like an emo Thursday type song. Like it, it was just everything under the banner of, you know, what, what we're calling extreme music. Yeah. And that was, but when, when you're introduced to it that way, you start to look at metal and I'm, I'm saying metal as kind of the umbrella term for all this. I know it's not technically... I know that's a subset of what we're talking about, but just for, for ease of use, I'm, I'm using metal. Let's say metal. Um, you, you start to look at, at metal as all of these subsets, if that's your first exposure to it. I remember uh, Misery Signals, uh, a single from their first record. And it was really fast and really punishing, like we've been talking about. <laughs> But they looked like such sensitive young dorks. And I just was, realized something. Yeah. Did Misery Signals only ever put on because of CanCon rules. Like, did we, did Misery Signals make it because of CanCon? Like, I, I don't know what that is, but I'm assuming it's something like the Canadian government mandates yeah. a Canadian. Well, they're not Canadian, they're not Canadian band though. They just have Canadian members. Oh, I got, okay. I wondered how that worked though. Cause like, didn't they have two members from like Manitoba or whatever? The, sing the singer is definitely Canadian. Like the, the original and now again, current singer is definitely Canadian. Well, also yeah. the Carl was Canadian too. Uh, and I, I don't know. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he's the only, like uh, maybe the one of the guitarists. All right. Well, my uh, can con theory too. is out the window, I guess. Never mind. But no, but I think you're right. Like they did, man. Like I wouldn't like Alexis on fire was probably pushed. Yeah. On that channel as well because of the Canada thing. So, but, but yeah, so, so now I, I, I see a bunch of bearded, long haired, tattooed up dudes. And I'm like, yeah, these look like cool guys who make cool music. But back then that could be a little intimidating to a, to a 12 year old. So, so misery signals is something a little more palatable in terms of image uh, where, where you could feel that it was, it was a little less scary to like, even though aesthetically the music was the same as that creepy doorway on Young Street, what was coming out of it, you know? It was right. as heavy and as rough. But the image of it was a, a, a little more friendly, let's say, or a little more relatable. Right. But it's it's interesting now because, so I think at least how I viewed it when I was teenager is metal as a whole just kind of felt like it was trying to push the scary, like, you know, death related, maybe more gorish type stuff relating to kind of horror movie esque look and feel. And now there are still bands doing that, but you get a lot more like a big thing over the last couple of years has been more of like the sci sci fi fantasy thing. Like, uh, you know, like Worms kind of does that. Cryptic Shift had that a little bit. And then there, there are lots of like deathcore-ish bands that also really kind of dip their toe into to the sci-fi element. And I guess sci-fi and horror aren't that far off. And it always makes sense if there's a relationship between film and music. Like it doesn't surprise me, but it is interesting. Like it, it gets a bit nerdier to use like a kind of lame term because I can't think of a better one, but it gets, it's gotten a bit nerdier because so much of metal can be considered nerdy. 
in terms of the time signatures and the, you know, polyrhythms and all that fun stuff than how I saw it as a teenager when it was all just scary and horror. Yeah. These guys were, these guys were going to dunk you in the school bathroom in the school toilet or whatever, put you in a locker. But now it's those nerds who were getting put in lockers who are making the death metal kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to go back sense. to Colin Marston, cause I feel like he's just going to be our perfect anchor point on everything, but like <laughs> he's, he's not an intimidating looking person. And yet the music he makes would fit into every category that we're going to talk about in terms of rhythms and tempo and dissonance and lyrical themes and, and kind of pushes all those different extremes. True. Um, yeah. You're talking about horror. It is at least the, like the early death metal. And I just keep thinking about death's first album and like the album art and I don't know, like I'd like to go back to the late 80s when that came out and get a read on if people thought that that was like intense. But now it's, 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 it's very charming. Yeah. And that's just with time. But there, there's like these zombies, skeleton characters, and they just look so stoked. They're just having a good, a good old time around a fire or something like that. There's one who's in like a wizard outfit or something. I'm just trying to mentally picture the record cover screen of Scream Bloody Core. But yeah, it, it's 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 kitsch in the way that like in the way that horror movies were kitsch at the time. Yeah. And 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 horror movies from the 80s have a charm now, you know. And this this so-called extremity, how much of that extremity is is kitsch, you know, the horror aesthetic. I know it's had to evolve and get more edgy as as horror movies have had to evolve and get more edgy. Um, but you have a lot of throwback bands, you know, last time we were talking about uh, the kind of the, the old school death metal revival. Yeah. They, they're, they're kind of doing that. I wouldn't call it kitschy. I don't think it looks like the cover of Scream Bloody Gore, but they're, they're, they're kind of going and they're going for that, that painted kind of 80s horror aesthetic, I guess. Right. But the interesting thing. So, yeah, naturally boundaries kept getting pushed over time. But at the end of the day, no one's ever going to come up with a more extreme cover than that Mayhem album with the singer suicide photo on it. Yeah, so I think which yeah, is so wild. Was, what uh, I'm not a huge Mayhem fan, but I'm under neither the am I. That's like uh, some sort of demo or comp. But that was that precedes. That would precede all of this, I think. Yes, it was like 1990 or the late 80s or early 90s, right? So that's what's so wild. Like that at the time of like the 90s must have been just, I can only imagine how many letters were written to the record. I guess they probably put it out, I'm going to guess unofficially because I can't imagine anyone would have wanted to put that in record stores happily, but I don't know. Yeah, that's, um, that's still messed up. Oh, it is. Yeah. Is, uh, it hasn't uh, aged any better. It's not like, it's not like the other stuff you're talking about where it's like, Oh, now the death album feels kind of, you look at it, you're like, this is kind of a cool piece of art somehow. It's like, no, the mayhem one is just bad still. It's even more canceled. If let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but on that, on, on the topic of black metal, that's a good, that's a good next point of the content. So, so yeah. So like we're talking about, Lyrical content, image, 
so, so the lyrical themes of uh, occultism, uh, blasphemy, uh, a sense of sort of cosmological mystery, conspiracy, uh, conspiracy about institutions uh, such as the church. So yeah. black metal is, I think that's probably the thing the public knows most about metal is church burning and stuff like that. Uh, but also kind of more recently ex existential dread. Uh, so, so themes of the universe is pure chaos or it's actually trying to hurt you. Band, yeah, the bands are kind of, especially this French crop of black metal bands and of the last 10 or 15 years. You know, talk about Deathspell Omega. Deathspell Omega is a good case study in this because yeah, um, acknowledging that they're, they too are canceled. There's kind of a theme going on here, but they were kind of one of the last bands to really hold a certain sense of mystery because they were asserting, no, we're real Satanists. Yeah. When, when, when Judas Priest and Slayer say it as kind of tongue in cheek in order to piss off the kid's parents and make the kid feel empowered and, and edgy by listening to so-called satanic music, Despel Omega is insisting, no, we are philosophical Satanists. This is something we actually uh, subscribe to and philosophize about. And that just adds to the mystique of it. And, and they, for a long time, I mean, I know they've kind of gone out of fashion for a long time. They were kind of like the last scary band, you know, the, like the last band that you wouldn't want to necessarily be associated with or, or meet them in a, in a room alone uh, for fear of what might happen to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is just funny though, because like, you know, black metal has had the, I mean, still every black metal band that comes out pretty much has the photos in the, in the forest with the, they're shot black and white. They're all in the face paint head to toe kind of thing, the corpse paint. So it's funny that that's existed in, in black metal for so long, but death spell Omega were able to kind of stand out so much by doing like, was there a thing I'm trying to picture, was there a thing like the cloaks and stuff as well. No, Did they you, do that? You, you never seen. You never. No one. Even so knows they who, just didn't. Who took, they are. They just didn't take like any sort of press photos. Okay, that was their this, thing. And that's what's amazing about all of this is this all comes from articles on the internet. No one has any identity on who it. No one even knows if it's how many like the number of members in the band. In fact, people don't even know if there's a drummer. People are speculating that the drums are are programmed. Like no one. No one can kind of get a read. There. There's. There's. Um. It's kind of like Banksy, <laughs> like there's, there's strong suggestions as to who they may be, but there's no actual confirmation. And it, and it's the dude from massive attack. We all know <laughs> the dude from massive attack is the, the, the primary songwriter. <laughs> he, of Death Omega. Yeah, he's also, he's Banksy and he's also the main member of Death Spell Omega. You hear, you heard it here first. Everyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so that that's impressive. I mean, again, trying to separate this from the problematic aspects of Deathspell, but there's something to be said for the fact that this mystique, this this uh, scariness that they had, in addition to the music tonally being, and I'm sure we'll we'll dig into this a bit later, but aesthetically quite off-putting and scary, they also had the image and the mystique to back that up as well, which I'm sure 
um, bolstered their popularity amongst us at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And then I guess the, the other end of all this within the bigger umbrella of metal is, you know, less imagery and that kind of stuff to, I think like the more punkish anti-politics, I shouldn't say anti-politics, I guess hyper-political, but anti, you know, authoritarian and all that kind of stuff. Bands really focusing on that and that drawing probably a different crowd to, you know, hardcore bands than say death metal. Very, very different, both extreme in different ways, but in, in very different ways. You're coming into your to your adolescence, um, you, you are politicized, or a lot of younger folks are, and and hardcore is kind of the most politicized music, at least in my experience. Hardcore kind of from a punk lineage, and that's attractive to engage with something that seems really tapped into the political zeitgeist and progressive social issues really espousing them and making that the focus of not just the lyrics but it seems like in, in hardcore it's, it's so driving and it's in its execution that it feels like everything is driving towards the vocals in hardcore like everything is done to support the message of the vocals in punk and hardcore which is something you can't really say about metal in fact a lot of metal would be a lot better if there were no vocals at all true uh, but hardcore is that's the focal point is its message uh, and the music can kind of simplify in order to benefit that yeah i think there's also a pure emotional component to it which is like kind of jumping off from what you said when you're becoming a teenager you start to realize the, the kind of politics and the fucked up things kind of going on now i'm imagining kids nowadays come across that a lot earlier because of social media and everything like the the tiktok generation now seems to be on top of social issues much earlier than i ever was but hardcore has this pure just anger that it helps you release and and that's extreme in a different way where it's more extreme on the kind of emotional side of things and emotionally raw and letting you just kind of release all that so when you leave a hardcore show or you you finish listening to a hardcore record you feel a bit like you've exercised some some of those some of that anger i think especially as like a teenager and young adult like there's a lot of that pent up and it gives you a place to put it for sure but it's not it's a, it's also educational like it's not even like an echo chamber it's like i already have these beliefs let me listen to something that affirms my beliefs when i was young i didn't know shit you know and True. And, and hardcore, you know, they'd even say like dates, be like in 1974, this happened. And they, they, you'd get educated <laughs> on, 
on uh, on on very specific things. It, it wasn't about a vague, you know, a lot of metal, the lyrics are in the vocals, as I said, are the weakest point. And I think that's because they lack a certain clarity and they seem a little bit indulgent as to the specific emotional experience of the person saying, like, I don't know this person. I don't know what this person's going through and I can't really relate to it. Whereas hardcore is very straight out of a book and, and something you can follow along uh, in, ter in terms of it, it breaking down a... Um, a certain event or, or movement or historical context or something like that. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't really, I didn't really thought of that in terms of the, the clarity, both in terms of how the music's made, but then also the lyrical clarity and being a bit more maybe almost prescriptive with how the lyrics are versus death metal, black metal, the, the, the production of the vocals almost matches the the lyrics a little bit more in a way, which is interesting. Well, I think there's a reason you can't understand death metal vocals. It, you know, it's probably because you shouldn't really have to. Yeah. They're, they're not really They're worth. a texture. They're like a texture. Yeah, they're a texture. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you, you brought up emotion. You know, I think, I think we're trying to find, or I don't think we're trying to pitch. To me, this isn't about pitching metal to people. This is about pitching it to myself because I, I don't know. I don't know why I listen to this or I'm so serious about it or like it so much. It's been so long and it's so entrenched in, in who I am and what I like that, that I don't think I've ever seriously questioned what it is about extremity that I engage with so much that I like, that I want to put hours and hours of, of, my, of my every day, you know, when I have music on it's going to be this. Uh, so why, what is it that draws me to it? I don't actually have a good answer for that. So anyway, these are all, these are all talking points about maybe trying to figure that out. But um, the emotional thing that you said, there, there's something attractive about emotions followed through to the extreme. So, so something you could lay against metal is that it's very melodramatic and life is not as dramatic as metal would portray the experience is you know in reality your your conduct is judged by how much you keep your feelings in check and moderated so if you receive praise or or your for, for your for your social interactions and awkwardness to me is is maybe showing a bit too much emotion or showing not keeping your emotion in check or seeming more nervous than you should be or saying something sharing too much like these kind of things and you listen to this music and it's all emotion there's nothing that's trying to be kept in. There's nothing that's trying to be moderated. It's just followed through to the extreme. And yeah, there's something really satisfying about that. I guess it's kind of like horror movies where, you know, there, there are those like studies of how horror movie fans are coping better with the pandemic. And I guess there's a, a you know, I don't know how necessarily true that is, but there's always been a bit of a correlation with, you know, horror, horror, movies and i guess music does this as well because they've also said metalheads are calmer uh when listening to metal music despite all the intensity i guess there's a bit of again like exercising those those feelings and releasing those and getting to experience that extreme without you're just listening or watching it like you get to experience the the extremes and see those things through without having to do anything yourself right mm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and, and for me, horror, uh, the, the satisfaction 
from horror as a as a genre, whether it be movies or or just storytelling in general, let's in this case music too, is is it's revealing that hey, guess what? Your suspicions about the nature of the world and how ugly that nature is, it they're real. They're right. Your suspicions were were correct. Uh, you're not crazy, <laughs> despite what uh, what every other piece of media would would have you believe. Things are really not okay, and horror kind of lets you gives you a little a little wink. Uh, to say like I got you, I, I know you're you're right. Don't worry. This and, is now and, the fake news. Metal is truth podcast. <laughs> yeah. Media would like you to believe that society is normal, but guess what? It isn't. You were right. Take, this is this is a uh, parlor's first original uh, podcast, <laughs> by the way. Because I got shut down on everything else. We're, we're gonna get deplatformed. Yeah. Uh I think the, you know, the other, one of the other main things for me personally, starting to listen to heavier music as, as a teen was speed. Like we've kind of covered, you know, the imagery, the lyrics and all that stuff. Like that's definitely, I think gets a lot of headlines on a broader scale because it's so easy to see it. Like you can see posters a lot easier. Well, you could see posters a lot easier than you could listen to music. Now music's very accessible, but the speed of which was what used to kind of grab me. Cause when you listen to more mainstream stuff or even just rock and roll or whatever, something super fast or even in metals case with doom metal, super slow yeah, is cuts through the noise like crazy like it's such a it's such a contrast to all the mid-tempo stuff you're used to hearing that's you know plus or minus 30 beats per minute around like 120 beats per minute right like almost everything's in that in that zone and then you hear metal which feels like it's at double the speed sometimes of that or with like a agoraphobic nosebleed like what four times the speed or whatever crazy tempos they sometimes program at like things like that. And I just remember the first time in high school, I heard uh, 94 hours by As I Lay Dying, which in retrospect is so funny that this was such a monumental thing. But uh, like minute in, there's the infamous like double bass part just underneath the most generic metalcore riff you've ever heard. Uh, like it's boilerplate metalcore, except for the double bass drums. And you're like, yo, this is the sickest thing I've ever heard. It's so fast. And you would just play that part over and over. And like the rest of the song isn't very good, really. I mean, I'm sure I thought it was at the time, but listening now, but the double bass drums, you're, I just remember trying to recreate that speed, like listening to it on headphones and trying to recreate that on my drum kit at home and just thinking it was the most impossible thing I had ever heard. Yeah, the the athleticism of of metal uh, it's it's kind of removed from its its value as i don't know a piece of 
of media to consume. Like it, it, it's outside of that. It, it's not, it, it, there's an enjoyment to be found in, in no, none of the musical structures, but in the knowledge that what is occurring is very athletic and impressive in terms of motor reflex skills, you know, just, just having that knowledge that in the same way that you'd see a, an, an amazing expression of sport or, or something at the Olympics, you know, that, that thrill you get at what the human, what a human is capable of that can be found, especially in this kind of music. So I guess the, the issue with speed as a whole, as kind of something for metal to hang its hat on when you're talking about these kind of different pillars of what makes metal extreme is it can only go so fast until it just becomes kind of noise or a hum in the background. Like sometimes we listen to music and songs we like, or bands we like, you know, the blasts are so fast that it's just almost just a layer of washed out noise behind because once you get something so fast, that's what it just becomes. Yeah. And kind of the death sentence of, of metal, and I might be, uh, I'll probably be proven wrong, but it, it was already kind of coded in to the genre like decades ago because uh, tempo is the driving force of evolution for this kind of music. Uh, because if you take, if you take blues, you take a standard blues riff and you speed that up, you double that, you get a rock and roll riff, you know, Ex- exact same melody. It's just the te- if you increase if you double the tempo, you, a blues riff becomes a rock and roll riff, and then you do the same to a rock and roll riff. You speed that up, you double that, you get punk. You, you double up punk, you get hardcore. You double up hardcore, you get thrash, and then when you double up thrash, then you get into grind and death metal, and then the the doom of everything is kind of set because it you can't it'll get to a point where evolution means it'll just sound like static yeah right so we are kind of, i i feel like we are at kind of this this point um this this evolutionary standstill because i can't think of like a really new development other than trends in the last 10 years because 10 years ago we kind of got the origins and cryptopsies of the world and agoraphoric nosebleeds as you said like topping out the speed limit until it would just literally sound like static. Right. But then that's, I think that probably also does a good job explaining why a lot of death metal now that's having this kind of Renaissance or throwback sound is a, is hearkening a bit more back to like the groovier death metal of before, like those riffs that are chunkier, not played at the fastest tempo like all the time anyways, maybe sometimes it's played pretty fast, but it's a lot more like mid-tempo-ish, grimier death metal. And I wonder if that's just the natural, like we have this natural thing that when we hear, okay, well, I've, I've pushed what I can play or listen to in terms of speed. Like I've kind of heard it all at this point. What's next? Well, can't get faster. So now I need to almost pull back and for some new things to listen to and some contrast, you almost have to go a bit slower or bring the tempo back. So it kind of, as a, as an arm of it, of extremity for the genre, it's almost funnily enough, probably one of the weaker things to keep you around and excited. 
I guess the most tangible manifestation of speed in metal uh, is, is the innovation of the blast beat, uh, which is a phenomenon borrowed from, from jazz, what you would define as speed. You know, you talked about 94 hours, the double bass. So yeah, the double bass is, is part and parcel of that too. That's a very unique to metal phenomenon. I don't think most forms of music are ever going to adopt a, a constant, you know, 32nd note, double bass uh, rush of, of, of hits, but blast beats, they, they should by design completely bring the music to a halt because they should overpower everything. You shouldn't be able to hear anything. It should just be like da, 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 with no breathing room whatsoever. Yeah. But they've just evolved into this, uh, in terms of style, like I know uh, symbol accents have a lot to do with it, but they've evolved into this, instead of it being this, this, this constant pounding, I feel like it's almost this, uh, it creates this white noise wave effect yeah. that, you're, that you're surfing on and it carries you through. Uh, like I'm thinking about there, there's, um, there's an album by uh, a Canadian tech death band called First Fragment and it's just wall to wall blast beats, but they're so, they're so condensed and, and, and they're accented so well that you just, they, they don't overpower. You just feel like you're cresting on this rumbling feeling of percussion. <laughs> Like you said about vocals, it, it is almost more of a texture uh, than than this constant pounding you in the face. Well, that's what I was trying. That's what I was saying about when you kind of think of the limits of these these things that we're gonna like that the different extremes of metal. That's the problem with speed. Is at a point a blast beat just becomes when there's no kind of groove or anything to it. It, it does just become background noise or, or kind of a layer versus, you know, I think one thing that uh, Blake from <laughs> Between the Barrier to Me has always been good at as a drummer with blasts is he always has this bit of a feel or a groove to his blasts. And, and part of that could just be simply everything from the way they're produced to him playing them. But his have, they never have felt like just, noise to me like they've always had a bit of a feel to them and and we discovered that one point after i think we it was like after great misdirect or parallax he did an interview where he said he had like messed up his one foot or leg so he can't do like a typical double bass like like he can't do the typical pattern of da 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 like it has to be a bit more rhythmic and i think that comes through right. and there's such a difference you notice such a difference between that and just like a blast beat at 240 beats per minute
his blasts are pretty unique uh, in that, and I don't hear a lot of other people do this. I've heard it before, but it's pretty rare. He turns them into triplets. Uh, yeah, they have a very triplet feel. So it's like a da 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 da. The the accents are very. They have that kind of hoppiness to them. Yeah, it's almost like a like a D beat, like in a weird way. Like it has this kind of this rhythm and and gallop i think is a term you've said to me before yeah it has, it has it. a very syncopated feel to it for yeah sure. so yeah I, I feel like i haven't done a very good job of of pitching tempo as like a benefit i've kind of i think I've, we've spent more time complaining about its relevance <laughs> but but to, to get back this is a critical analysis it doesn't have to be you know like i think tempo is viewed as a as a thing for metal music to hang its hat on. So I don't think it's necessarily wrong for us to say, maybe that's one of the things it should not worry about so much versus, you know, the next kind of pillar, which is like dissonance, Mm -hmm. which I guess also has its limits, but I think dissonance is something you can work with in a lot of different ways, whether it's the relationship between instruments or just the dissonance of like a guitar, uh, can be, I think, a lot more interesting than just something being super fast. Yeah, I think dissonance is, is for me, the most important uh, thing that, that metal music, extreme music contributes to the landscape. Uh, just simply because it's really the only, one of the only uh, genres that are engaging with it enthusiastically. Um, yeah, you know, we're we're talking about dissonance in in the most basic musical sense of of, of tension, melodic tension versus consonance, which is um, melodic stability. So, metal is very willing to use a lot of pitches that will create tension when juxtaposed with one another, whether that be you know, lots of chords that are, that are tritones. This is just creating very tense, quote unquote, ugly melodic shapes in the music. And yeah, we're getting back to the horror thing. You know, the, the closest thing I can describe it to is something like, like horror movie music or, or yeah. like, like, a, like psycho, you know, like the de, 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 de. <laughs> yeah. you know, all those, all those like really uh, ugly tritones and, and horror music and shrieking violins. It's kind of, found a home in the composition and arrangement of, of metal riffs and the, the larger songwriting. Yeah. And I mean, you've, it's, it's been interesting to note the, the influence and change of that in metal music too, because when, you know, I guess Gore Guts were probably the first, uh, I'm going to say big band, but I guess that's all relative, but big band within death metal to use dissonance on such a, kind of consistent big and noteworthy level like they got pretty like they're pretty well beloved and now they've been around i guess for god like 25 years and but past them it it took a while before like an ulcerate kind of became big doing that same thing and now there are lots of bands like anytime there's a new noteworthy death metal band that you see kind of showing up on the blogs or that'll send to you excitedly it's almost always like ulcerate is an influence that they they happily list and that's just been i think the biggest 
pillar that a lot of mu- uh, metal music has hung its hat on is this dissonance and ulcerate i think is probably and it's funny ulcerate's never been like my favorite band but their influence has been incredible i i always i used to joke uh, gorguts is my favorite genre yeah that's a perfect way of putting it or i should be even more specific obscura the 1988 album by gorguts is my favorite genre oh my god it was 88 98 okay holy i was gonna be like oh my god (laughs) the year the year after death that would be wild yeah um but you know uh, i think the seeds were there if you listen to especially erosion of sanity there there's definitely it's not like a it's like a totally unheard of leap from erosion of sanity to obscure i mean it is substantially different but you can see the seeds. So credit where credit's due to Gorguts. You, you know, Gorguts is kind of the, the the bottom level dissonance to me. I think there's there's a top level to it where there, there's a bit more subtle use of it in extreme music that's noteworthy. I think a lot, it, it's used a lot to tether what would otherwise be, I think, really sappy and sentimental and, and melodramatic. And it tethers it. It adds a little bit of tension, an element of dissonance in order to give it a bittersweet quality. Yeah, it can instantly make something sound evil that otherwise would not. I'm not even talking about evil, because to me that that's kind of going into the Gorguts thing, because I'm even thinking of like um, like animals as leaders. Yeah, that popped into my head too. That's interesting. Because Tosin is, is really good, and I know it's because he uses like a lot of extended chords, and that's kind of inherent to that, but... There's, um, I was listening to, to a, off the most recent Animals as Leaders album, a song, I think it's Private Lives of something other. Anyway, um, he has a solo in it and it's hilarious because it's Animals as Leaders who has the most elaborate solos probably currently in metal, but um, it's a single note. <laughs> he just plays the same note maybe four or five times uh, over, this, over this, this little motif and the motif, if you looked at it on its own, could be very saccharine and, and kind of a sappy, uh, you know, emo riff almost. But this note, because he keeps repeating this note, it's, it's, it's clashing a little harshly against this, this riff that's underneath it. And it's just tethering it. It's giving a little bit of tension and it's making it really bittersweet and really real and feel really earned. Um, whereas before it would just be pretty. Um, so just him adding that, t- that little bit of texture, just a single note, um, gave it so- gives that part so much weight and poignance, just this hint of friction. A, that's a really specific thing I think to metal whereas pop and I'm not trying to sh- this isn't going to be about shitting on pop and metal is the truly best music but you know pop would not go whole hog on that they, you know they would go whole hog on let's go as as sweet and saccharine as as we possibly can let's have as much consonance as we possibly can yeah says the guy who sent me an Ariana Grande song and was like yo this sounds like 
what did you say? It sounds like Gorguts or something. Sounds like Kralis. Sounds like Kralis. And then you posted a video of you playing the guitar to it on Instagram. So it really isn't the pop is shit podcast because Alec loves it. I am. I will gladly admit that that, that in fact, that entire record is a, is a big breath of fresh air for me anyway, because kind of like we're talking about Tosin, um, she's doing a lot of things. Ariana Grande is doing a lot of things with like string arrangements and stuff that, that are adding a little bit of tension that you would not otherwise expect. Yeah. But I think, I think that notion of tension is really interesting because I think when you talk about the extremes of metal, so much of it comes back to, I mean, every great story in time needs, needs tension. So it's not surprising that, you know, a genre that put all these things that this genre pushes increases tension in a lot of ways. If it's speed, uh, I mean, it's simply increasing tension between how fast it can be and how fast you're used to hearing it. Dissonance increases the tension between instruments. Uh, the lyrics can simply increase tension when it comes to what they're talking about. I mean, it can increase the tension emotionally for you. Um, It's, it's not surprising when you're seeing now pop music or artists like a juice world who really liked like punkier music and finding that kind of emotional tension that you're now seeing it also appear in mainstream pop stars music as well and that's a weird connective tissue from like metal to say ariana grande but i think you're seeing a lot more of that influence in hip-hop and i guess now extending to to pop i mean hip-hop just is pop music now but that tension i think is really really exists i think tension is naturally interesting Yeah, conflict is is the cornerstone of great storytelling. Exactly. In other in other media, right? It's the using con mastering conflict means that you've mastered the story, really. And you know the same could be said of of music. Music that's lacking in conflict can, at least for me, um, won't hold interest. Yeah, I mean that's that. You know that's I love bands that do and i mean we we talk about them enough but you know between the barium is really good at really long build-ups to big kind of cathartic breakdowns or riffs that kind of release the tension and it's funny those i was thinking about this the other day of how like BT Bam have some of my favorite kind of big moments in songs. And then I was like, well, what do I mean by that? Why, why did that pop into my head? And it really is these builds that build tension, build tension, build tension, and then finally release in a, in a breakdown or a riff. Uh, And I think it's natural for 
tension and, and mastering conflict or releasing that tension to feel cathartic when you're listening to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think so, so catharsis is probably, you know, top five words people would pick when describing the sensation of listening to this kind of music. I think that's one of the words I see the most is, is catharsis. And on that, it, you know, it, the, the easiest thing you can say about the music is, or, or that you can say about dissonance in the music is that it's interesting, at least. Um, it, it provides things you, you rarely hear in other media, in other music. Uh, there's a novelty there. Uh, and over time, like when you and I have become kind of acclimated to it, so dissonance no longer, it, it, it's now just kind of another tool that we're used to, but it, it, it gives a richer vocabulary because I think in, I'm, I'm trying not to keep shitting on pop here. I'm just going to use it one more time as an example. There's kind of a, a binary about emotion. You know, there, there's an Adele ballad, which is sad. And then there's, take your pick of any other kind of bubble gum. I'm going to have a party and I'm going to hustle and I'm going to get laid tonight, kind of joyous pop songs. Um, but life at least for me, is, is rarely one or the other. It, like every emotion is kind of tinged with, with, with its opposite in a lot of ways. You know, when I'm having a really good time, when I'm out wheeling and drinking and having a good time, <laughs> um, I, I always, and maybe this is just me, maybe I'm just weird, but uh, I always have a tinge of melancholy at the same time because I'm kind of aware of where this night is in the context of my life and that this night's going to be over. And you know, I, I always feel that there, there's a sliver of the negative emotion in having a good time that gives it, like we're talking about with the music example, a bit of poignance, a bit of friction. And likewise, when you're having a bad time, it's not as cut and dry as everything is shit. You know, there, there's, there, there's, other, there's other feelings that are peppered in. Dissonance is kind of giving a, just a, a wider vocabulary of feelings. You know, I'll, I'll listen to something and it's like, I don't know what I'm feeling right now because it is so blended. It is so synthesized between a lot of different conflicting feelings. Right. I, I think another thing kind of related to dissonance, but also kind of pushing the envelope in another way. And this isn't, this has never been my, like a thing that's really drawn me to different bands or, or anything in music, but I know you really like, like, I think it's, Jute if that's the proper pronunciation, pronunciation is like microtonality, which is definitely a thing that that has kind of emerged to even push beyond just basic dissonance. Yeah, Jute I I don't even know if I like it, man. Like, I don't even know if we're opposed. Like, it's not like, yeah, I love this. I would feel like a huge douche if I unironically said, like, yeah, this is good. Like, I truly enjoy this. <laughs> no, it's really difficult, man, because it um it really pushes against everything you've come to rely on in terms of your lexicon of like what makes up music in general. Or what makes things sound basically good. Exactly. You know, yeah. like, so, so, so microtonality is this, it's been in music for thousands of years, but in terms of uh, Western 
or music inspired by a Western mode. It's, it's a relatively novel concept in like genres like metal and stuff like that to use microtonality. So microtonality is pitches that exist outside of the, the 12 tones of the octave or the 12 divisions of the octave that we have been tempering our instruments to for the past few hundred years. So, so you know, why, why is a certain pitch considered quote more correct than another pitch when certain cultures around the world, they'll, in their vocabulary of music and in their instruments, they'll be playing pitches that are outside of the Western scale. Uh, so, so yeah, metal, of course, is the genre that's kind of, obviously there's jazz and avant-garde that's, that's engaging with that too. But uh, in terms of metal, um, Juke Gite, which is a, a one-man experimental black metal band, I, when I first heard that, I, I didn't even know what microtonality was. And I could not, it was, it was a similar moment to, it was the closest I've gotten in a long time to, you know, keep returning to that doorway on Young Street, that feeling of, of, the, of truly being challenged and, and, and feeling uncomfortable because of your lack of ability to explain what you're experiencing and why it is that way. Right. So, which is exciting in a way, because as we've said, like, when you're getting into metal in the first place, it is to kind of, it, it is, it scares you a little bit or, or it's kind of mysterious or you can't figure out why. And that's kind of why we're touching on these different pillars of what makes it extreme and, and kind of exciting. So something like microtonality for seasoned, very seasoned like metal listeners like us, I, like the same thing that when I first heard Juke Guide, I was like, whoa, I've never heard this before. This is crazy. And then I've never listened to it again. And, and I, I, I really have grown to appreciate a lot of the later Juke Guides because I feel like he's making experiments that are gradually sharpening themselves and expanding the palette. But the riffs are, are, are not, let's say, fantastic riffs outside of this added fact that they're in quarter uh, quarter tones you know right um, like if you were to transpose that into your typical 12 edo or equal temperament and just play those riffs i mean it would sound like probably most metal riffs really you know it, it, it's 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 that little uh little quirk i don't mean to condescend by calling it that but that little fact that it is microtonal that's giving it a little bit of extra interest whereas otherwise it it would be a pretty standard riff right yeah uh, but but he's definitely uh the mastermind behind juke guide is definitely on the last later albums i think he's coming to his own with that stuff and is making stuff that is that can stand on its own microtonal or not well i think i, I want to jump to kind of the next main pillar because for me i think this has always been the the thing that has always intrigued me within metal and, and made me try bands or really fall in love with bands. Now I think Car Bomb is going to be a good example. Put them on the ground, the 
I mean, it's the rhythmic side of things. It's that disorientation or, you know, bands pushing the envelope when it comes to time signatures or not pushing the time signature, but pushing the rhythms within those time signatures and whether it's like polyrhythmic or stop start changes or, you know, for me, I think the first time I really heard this kind of stuff outside of, you know, it starts with, you know, using as I, as I lay dying around that time being into kind of the more standard metalcore, they use rhythms as, as breakdowns to kind of help you, help you kind of groove or, or get in the pit. Not that I was ever much of a get in the pit type person in mosh or anything, but I've you seen know, you looking, I've seen well, you throw down once, I think once at a converge show and I was very sweaty. Uh, I, it was like summer and I was wearing a jacket inside at a concert and then I was moshing. You didn't, you didn't want to hurt other people. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a big boy. <laughs> I'm a big boy. I don't want to. I'm a, I'm a big boy. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, outside of like the As I Lay Dying breakdowns and, you know, bigger shout out to August Burns Red because their breakdown rhythms were always pretty sick. Uh, yeah. but outside of that, the, the biggest band that that always did that were, was Dillinger. Uh, like, I think that's kind of the most obvious converge would fall in here too. But I think Dillinger, when it came to rhythms, they really explored, I mean, like their most famous riff is a, is a, is a rhythm really like, yeah, it's, it's a chord, but it's like a chord and a chug just to a, to a cool rhythm. And that's pretty amazing for a classic rock band <laughs> yeah they really they really are just that now it's so funny how it's as time goes on it, it does feel like they are our like boston yeah. or, or kansas like we look back at them fondly we like <laughs> in 40 years when we have gray hair we're going to be sitting on a chair like lovingly petting our records like the few records we kept around and it's going to be like a converge record and a Dillinger record. And we're just going to be like, man, trying to tell like our kids or grandkids or whoever will listen. Like this was my favorite band as a, as a teen, you know, hoping someone will listen. (laughs) Q107's playing 43% burn. 2042. (laughs) That would rule. (laughs) I'm surprised you're not doing it already. Well, I, I think so. Dillinger, I think for me, started it and they're still like well i don't i wouldn't say i frequently listen to them now like that frequently they are just such a uh, a key kind of component of my metal listening and evolution from there there are obviously the the mashugas of the world pretty much exclusively known for their wild rhythms and time signatures uh mashuga for me despite me just saying that probably rhythm is the biggest most important thing for me in in metal mashuga's never really done it for me like i kind of got into to to bleed and whatever that record was called when it came out but that was just because of the obzen 
Yes, Obs- I was going to say Obsidian, and I'm like, that's not right. Obzen. Uh, you know, they have always pushed pushed the boundaries when it comes to rhythms and, I mean, incredibly impressive performance of those rhythms. I, that always left me in awe. Like, uh, how did he do that? Or how did they manage to, to make that work kind of feeling? But when it comes to things I really like or love and, and keep coming back to, Mashuga didn't have enough, quite frankly, melody for me versus... No, I totally get that. Yeah, like, the, you know, when you're talking about, I mean, it's perfect kind of, you know, you're talking about tension. For me, like, an animals as leaders, wild rhythms that keep you on your toes and are constantly interesting, but melodies on top of that, that are, that there's this big valley of tension in between the leads and the rhythms that that's what I like. Oh, that's the sweet spot for me. Meshuggah will rarely climax because it's all one constant, like, like they're really good at modulating and like their songwriting is, is, they're, they're one of the best in bands in terms of songwriting, but you're right in that I don't get a sense of Meshuggah that, that bleed over its like, I don't know how long is it, six minutes, that it's, uh, that it's building towards anything. I guess it, it does kind of have like a final breakdown, but it's just, it's, just, it's just a big long breakdown that's an endurance test. But, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm a Meshuggah fan, but you know, I'm not the world's biggest. Uh, but Meshuggah and, you know, you said Dillinger, Dillinger Escape Plan. To me, there are kind of two ends of a spectrum and two different ethoses about this disorienting rhythmic style. Uh, or Dillinger, if I can describe what they bring to the table as a positive, despite it being like we're, we're talking about disorientation, like machine gun, this, this seeming feeling of randomness, what it is demanding of you is surrender. And here comes this word again, catharsis. There is something incredibly cathartic about surrendering uh, to the point where you might try to bob your head and, 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 and reconcile what this is and make sense of it, but you're never going to be able to achieve that because it is so chaotic and so lacking in any, well, there, there's repetitions of thir- certain themes, but it's done in such a way where it's so difficult to, to, to find the pulse and to keep with the pulse, right? Especially the first time you're hearing it. Especially it's like the first, time. the first time is legitimately pure chaos, right? Because you've never heard it before. Obviously from once you get the hang of it, it does become controlled chaos and you're able to figure out where to where to move a bit more, but like the first time hearing a, a Dillinger breakdown or another one that comes to mind is the end of that really great Gojira song. Oh yeah. Where, like I, you know, I did like Gojira for a period of time. I don't really go back to them anymore, but I will every once in a while be like, man, I need to hear that ending again. And because once you've, although I will say the Gojira one, I still kind of miss the the mark on trying to be like oh this is where it's it's gonna hit but there's something cool about the movement from the first time you hear it it's totally chaotic and you can't wrap your head around it that's exciting don't get me wrong but then when it moves into controlled chaos territory and it still feels chaotic but you know where the chaos is going to occur that's 
also super exciting because you're in anticipation because you know when it's going to hit. Yeah. Super, super satisfying. Yeah. All you, yeah. All you can do is just, it's like a euphoric feeling. All you can do is just give, give up. And, and yeah, and there's just something freeing about that. Something, maybe I'm reading too much into that, but that's, I'm just imagining kind of head banging to like uh, Destro's secret by Dillinger. And even after having listened to that song 150 times, I, I probably still could not headbang accurately to that. And I just love this feeling of, of trying to do it for the first couple of beats because I got the first couple of beats down and then my head just becoming this spasming thing that's not connected to music hall. And then just finally like shaking your head just in surrender, like feeling as though they like like you can give up and you can relax well and it's cool to to think that no matter how many times you you've listened to it and there are some other there are some other riffs and and stuff from like like i think it's an extremophile elite by bt bam there's that one breakdown ish rhythm that you and i i don't think still can figure out what the time signature is I think it's, it's an extreme it's just done in such a way. Yeah, no, it is. It, it's just done. It, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's just done in such a way. <laughs> I don't know. It, it's similar to Meshuggah actually, where, wherein like Meshuggah are, are the opposite of Dillinger because they're not asking you to surrender. Meshuggah is going to hold your hand and take you along at a very, and onboard you to this rhythmic chaos because they're keeping everything in fours. There's a backbeat of four, 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 four groove all the time. I think that's why Meshuggah is so popular is they were the f- one of the first to really take that groove yet have the repeating themes and multiple different time signatures and meters, but always keep it with a 4-4 backbeat. So you're, you're always consistently bobbing your head to the right beat, right. even though this, uh, this metric chaos is occurring. And that's what's attractive about Meshuggah is you're getting to enjoy uh, all these rhythmic uh, complexities, but you always know where the beat lands because you've always got that backbeat because they're they're guiding you through it with the four four. And Meshuggah themselves say we are a four four band. We are in fact the most four four band <laughs> Yeah, they push the limits of four four, and that's interesting because there's obviously a safety that comes with that for the listener because, like you're saying, you know. I can bob my head, I can be in the crowd head banging and not look stupid and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. the thing that excites me with what I was saying about Dillinger and then something like Extremophile Elite, what makes me happy about that is no matter how many times I listen to it, I'm still like, there's this band managed to record something that still challenges me and like makes me smile. Like I know when I put on that song to listen to, there's going to be a moment where I'm genuinely challenged still, despite listening to me metal for so long that there are still things on record and on records. I love that like make me laugh because I still can't figure it out. Yeah. That's super true. It's, it's like a game you know, a game with good replay value, right? Like, like I can, I can still find challenge. I can still find new play expressions uh, with this game after multiple playthroughs. It's that's, that's kind of, yeah. Like what I feel when you describe it that way, I never saw it that way. Actually, that's really cool. 
Yeah, because it's it's like, oh man, okay, the moment's coming. I'm gonna get it this time. I'm gonna get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And then, like you were saying, like you get the first couple, maybe you improve a little bit, and then it just falls apart. And then you're just you're just kind of laughing because you still they still beat you. Like that makes yeah, it exciting because yeah. <laughs> we're we're talking about extremes and how that pushes pushes you and you're always trying to find once you kind of get your fix of that you move on to the next extreme whether it's something faster or something more dissonant or whatever in in metal music but to have something that you know you keep coming back to and it still has at least a couple moments of you haven't figured me out yet i i just think that's that's cool man yeah, and you kind of describing it almost like a like a, a compet- competition, like like a yeah, a little bit a friend friendly competition between the listener and the artist. Um, remind you know I, I made the connection to games, but that that's my big takeaway from rhythmic disorientation as a positive in in extreme music because it feels like it's when when it when a when a song is doing that it's flexing against the rules quote unquote the rules yeah uh, it's 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 bending them to see at which point they might break but it never breaks them it never crosses the line it's playing it's playful it's playing in a space and it's being clever about it i think rhythmic disorientation is is this celebration of being clever in the same way that like how mathematicians have found very peculiar and interesting ways numbers can 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 manifest and 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 behave in a sequence um, making sense of these rules ordering them reorganizing them uh, making them work in ways that weren't originally intended like it's always following rules it's because it's playing fairly and and that's what's kind of weird because metal is supposed to be serious and dour and scary but to me, that's really playful and kind of almost mischievous, which you wouldn't associate with something that's supposed to be super serious and brutal. It's, it, it's, it's a very playful game almost, I think. Yeah, and I, I think, and you and I have talked about this at points, but there's, there's a certain natural element to, to death metal and black metal and everything at the end of the day, which is a lot of it is pretty silly. Like yeah. when you think about it, the the imagery, the extremes and the buttons they people and bands try to push with with their image or the album art they use or the lyrics or the song titles, how fast they play, how slow they play. Uh, I'm doing a great summary of all this pod. This is going to be a perfect segue <laughs> to the ending. But so trying to push all these different different buttons, there's there is this natural silliness, and I like to think that a lot of a lot of the people we see making this kind of music, especially in like the New York scenes and stuff, because they they typically don't hide like who they are, like a Death Spell Omega. And you can see that they just kind of look like average people. I'd like yeah. to think they acknowledge this, the little bit of silliness and, and fun that naturally comes with playing a, a death metal. I mean, it's called death metal. Like it's kind of it's kind of silly on the surface. So there, there should be this kind of, I'm going to say like almost whimsy to it at times. And that's probably where you get some of those sci-fi-ish themes that bands like to dig into that we mentioned earlier, that, that there is just this natural fun that should come with it. For sure. Like when you and I go to a show, 
and when we know a, a part is coming or, or something happens that that could be any one of these topics we just discussed, um, like a, a presentation of that, you know, a cool dissonance or a weird rhythmic idea or really fast part or something, you know, we're turning to each other and, and we got big smiles on our face. And so does the majority of everyone else standing there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, it's interesting that it can make us so happy because the, the natural, these, these pillars that we've talked about and to kind of sum it all up, really what has attracted us to them and extreme music as a whole is, is kind of pushing those boundaries and, and pushing what we listen to and trying to find things that are different and that we've never heard before. And then when it kind of comes down to it, you find the things that you really love and then you listen to it over and over again um, which is, which is kind of an interesting thing. Like you find it cause you want it to push your boundaries and then you kind of end up getting comfortable with it. But there is this, that's when the kind of fun of it sets in versus just that wild, you can't comprehend what you're listening to element. And it just becomes the fun side of something being really fast. Like again, playing the 94 hours blast beat, or I shouldn't say blast beat double bass part over and over again, you know what you're going to hear, but it makes you smile mm -hmm. or hearing those rhythms that you can't quite figure out and trying to figure them out and, and it beating you. And that's fun. Um, you know, all of these, all these things end up being kind of what makes the genre fun and attractive. But at first it is a seek. It's us seeking out boundary pushing ideas. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, it touched on it earlier. Yeah. Like my takeaways overall. Um, and this might tie in a little bit if it might sound a little extreme, like a little, a little over the top, but like feeling stronger for your ability to, to handle it, you know, J listening to something and knowing that it is difficult and knowing that it is thematically challenging on the surface, maybe a little scary and dramatic. And then aesthetically difficult to parse rhythmically. Maybe the melodies aren't especially consonant or, or, or stable. They feel kind of wrong in a way. Um, taking all that and being like, yeah, I can, I can take this in. I can, I can accept it and I can, I can get it that I'm not just shut off to that. And then years later, after listening to these things for long enough, we're able to make a podcast where we talk about the things. That's the natural evolution. It goes from boundary pushing to fun to let's critically analyze it and suck what remaining fun there is right out of it. <laughs> <laughs> well it's it's like it, i find myself either having to apologize for this kind of music or for some people who are, are, are polite about it and, and curious like oh what do you like about it you know I, I don't have a good answer because everything about it should be because the easy answer would be like well i'm this byronic archetype slash sad boy 
likes dark things no no you like screamo that's my favorite part is when anyone's like what kind of music do you listen to and you're like oh uh like metal there the answer is almost like oh like screamo like that's that's the somehow the term that crossed over the most into kind of mainstream listening and the only thing i can think of is like the kind of little bit of emo semi screamo phase that i think kind of populated high school when we were when we were teens like it was just popular enough for it to become a pop culture term yeah and it it was heavy but extremely like unthreatening well it was just pure teenage like angst emotion screamed out right with like the haircuts and the studded belts and the whole but but they were super like slight men and, and some women but you know mostly like skinny boys who you could if they came at you you could just kind of shove them out of the way and they'd fall <laughs> apart you know like it like it was you really t- you really touched on like body types of metal musicians today and i'm starting to think that you had just lived in fear of death metal bands as like a teenager <laughs> and now you feel like a big tough guy now that i've gained now that i've gained 40 pounds after covid i'm, like, <laughs> I'm ready to push all these emails around <laughs> we're gonna to bring back the good old me. days of death metal where the <laughs> yeah. where the band members were burly <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> well i think with that kind of um, summary uh i think we successfully covered the different kind of key pillars i mean there are always going to be others like there are bands that go in the direction of just playing harsh noise and stuff like that but i mean harsh noise is i guess a technical pillar of all of this but the conversation would have been pretty short so yeah i had a, i had that in the note but i i, I couldn't really like we're talking about tones like like yeah you said harsh noise uh like stuff that literally hurts, not just like, oh, this is scary. I mean, stuff that, that is unpleasant to your eardrum. It will cause you physical pain because of the frequency it's designed. Its sonority is designed to like actually hurt. Yeah, it takes ear. the idea of white noise, but makes it violent. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a painful process. I mean, I couldn't even, there, there are bands that I like that do that. I had here, Con 8, they're a cool band, Gnaw Their Tongues, Full of Hell, I'm like, I'm all right with, I think they're, they're cool, but they do that too. Uh, I, I couldn't really come up with a good <laughs> defense of it. Not that they need my defense, but I, I couldn't really rationalize it in the context of this discussion. Like I, it just feels designed to hurt. So what can I say? Like, yeah, it hurts. Why, why is that cool? I don't know. It's, I, I guess I admire the, the chutzpah of it, you know, the kind of, oh, wow. They're really yeah. going for that, you know, but that's all. But I it, but it feels, it. I mean, like, I, I think compared to the things we've talked about, like the noise thing is kind of, is kind of lazy compared to everything else. Like I'd even call the tempo thing a bit lazy because like you, okay. Yeah, cool. You can just push it really fast. Now it's not physically lazy, but it's lazy in terms of thinking through what ways to, to push and to push boundaries and be extreme. I'd say just making really loud noise has to be the laziest way to push boundaries for people. Like, 
I, I don't know. I w- I'd love to talk to a noise fan and figure it out the same way. I'm sure people, cause I think we're doing to noise fans, like what people are doing to us in terms of like, why do you like that scream out? True. You know, like, That's a good like, point. So I, I, but I agree with you. I, I come from the same, I, I, I will probably never like harsh noise as a, as a genre, but it has a fan base and I'd like to figure out what that is. So I don't know, maybe in the future. Well, speaking of harsh noise, you never want to listen to, we will sign off and play you our sign off music, which is one of our bands. So with that, thanks for listening to episode two, uh, the extremeness, the extremities of, of metal music and we'll, and their, and their qualities and, and their quality. Qual- yeah. And the qualities, the, the goodness of it. And also a little bit of the, you know, badness of it, I guess this is a crit- this is an unbiased critical analysis. So, yeah, it started out as like, why, why is this good? Why do we like this? And we, we brought in a bit, of, a bit of shade here and there, but hey, we got to keep it real. That's right. Well, until next time, thank you for listening. Take it easy.